This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Professor Russell Foster. Now, one of the main reasons I started this podcast six years ago was after I started learning about sleep medicine and the incredible ill effects mentally and physically through sleep deprivation. So six years later, I get to sit down with Russell, one of the pioneers in circadian and sleep medicine. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey through zoology into sleep medicine, how sleep deprivation is causing mental health issues, cancer, obesity, hormonal disruption, how we can improve the physical and mental health in our shift workers, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Professor Russell Foster. Enjoy. Well, Professor Foster, I'd love to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. I'm really delighted to join you, James. So as an icebreaker, the reason I know about your work, there's, there's uh, a few kind of figures in this kind of space. Uh, Professor Andrew Huberman is, is definitely one of the, the voices we hear a lot in this area. Um, but my dad was the one who educated me on you and your work. And then since listening, you know, it's absolutely fascinated me. Sleep has been such a, an important topic in my profession. So just starting, how did you meet my dad and, and what was the work you were doing in Imperial College at that time? Well, the first point, of course, is that it's a good example of why you should always listen to your father. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> he was actually um, even on the podcast. <laughs> we, we were we were uh, colleagues at Imperial College in London, and um, I was at the University of Virginia for eight years. And um, we had three children who were born in the States. Uh, but my wife, it was it, she's a lawyer. And it was and it was tricky to to find a, a good slot for her to get back uh, to get back into work. So one of the reasons we came home was was essentially to 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 get her career, which had been on hold, um, back kickstarted again. And I joined originally the biology department in um, Imperial College because my background is, is is zoology and comparative biology. Um, and um, then was offered a job at the Institute of Ophthalmology and. Uh, Somebody in the medical school said to me, hang on, don't sign anything until Monday. Um, and then they offered me a very nice job. In fact, they almost doubled my salary. See, it's always, it's always, it's always good to work for medical departments rather than departments of biology because the medics get paid a lot more. Um, and so I sort of, my, my eyes popped out on stalks, but I was, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a reasonable poker player. So I, I kept cool about it and moved moved to the medical school um, and set up 
a small department of molecular neuroscience. Um, we were then integrating some of these wonderful uh, discoveries being made in the neurosciences, some of these new techniques. And so really was, was pushing hard on how is the internal biological clock producing these sort of beautiful 24-hour circadian rhythms? How is it set by the external world? It's fine having a clock, which we can use to fine-tune physiology and behavior, sort of anticipating the very demands of the rest activity, the day-night cycle. But unless it's it's locked on to the external world, um, it's it's of no value at all. A classic mismatch would be jet lag, um, where the internal day is completely misaligned to the external day. And we knew that light was critically important at setting the internal clock. And the question that we were addressing um, and it was really an incredibly productive period uh, of time at Imperial, was, was how can the visual cells do this? Because what the visual cells do is grab light for our sense of space and, in a sense, forget they've seen light in a fraction of a second. Uh, and it, it never made sense to me how, how those visual cells, the rods and cones, could also be used for the detection of the dawn-dusk cycle for the regulation of internal time, because you need to, to, to detect that light um, over long periods of time, and it needs to be quite bright. And so it never really and never really could understand. So we did some experiments using mice with hereditary retinal disorders, mice that were visually blind because they had genetic diseases where their rods and cones had broken down, uh, but they could regulate their clock absolutely perfectly. It's not only they could just do it, they did it with the same sensitivity as normal mice, um, you know, with, with their rods and cones. And when we cover the eyes, this ability to regulate the clock by light had gone. So we led, it sort of led to the conclusion, there must be something else within the eye. There must be another light sensor within the eye. And uh, when we first published some of these data when we were well, first of all we, we, it was very difficult to publish these data because people just didn't believe it um and i remember giving a talk uh actually in the states at one of the big vision meetings and saying these data you know on these rodless canless uh, mice are consistent with the fact there must be another light sensor within the eye and some chap at the back of the auditorium stood up and looked at me and i thought he was going to ask a question and he just said bullshit and <laughs> walked out <laughs> And, and so, uh, yeah, it took us about 10 years to convince the community, the vision community, um, that there was something else really exciting going on in the eye. And, uh, yeah, it was um, it was an interesting time. I mean, we had we had um, some terrible setbacks. I mean, I, I had one grant that we submitted to the Eye Institute. In fact, this was stuff actually at the transition between the, uh, coming from the States to the UK. And it was completely destroyed, absolutely destroyed. Um, and um, my chairman, Mike Menneke at University of Virginia, called me into his office and, um, and I thought, oh gosh, you know, I'm going to get a dressing down now. This is the kind of the end of my career. You know, my, 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 my grant application has failed. And he said, no, you're right. Um, this is great stuff. It's great data. Send it to another part of the, the funding body. So I sent it to NIMH. Six months later or so, uh, I got a call saying, uh, congratulations, Dr. Foster, your grant has come top of the, the panel. And I basically had made no changes to it. It was the same grant that was kicked out into the, the outer darkness with the Eye Institute. Um, and um, they said, would you mind if we um, 
copied this grant and took it to the Society for Neuroscience meeting as an example of, of how a research grant should be written. And it was a really important lesson to have sort of had in my early career, where where basically um, you keep on kicking the door until the buggers let you in. And it was that, that, I mean, it's often sort of caricatured as a can-do attitude in the United States, but it is. And and I think it was that spirit of of just, you know, just not being knocked back um, and not taking no for an answer, which was a very, very important lesson. Um, so, yeah, and, and then continue with the work in, in, at Imperial College. And uh, it's it's just sort of carried on, you know, starting with mice, then humans, and now working on drugs, which we I guess we can talk about later, on, on how to fool the clock that it's seen light for people who don't have eyes. Well, I want to go to the beginning of your timeline, but just before I do, when you're talking about door kicking, that was something that I found, um, really, the, the creation of this podcast was founded out of that absolute death grip onto the way we've always done it before. And so, as we touched on before we started recording, as things are starting to open up with the cancer in the first responder community, there's this death grip on carcinogens. And absolutely, that's that's a part of it. When we look at the mental health side, there's a death grip on it's a trauma that we see. Um, obesity, I mean, all these things that we'll probably unpack in a bit. But And it's been hard because the fire service even uh, more so than in the UK, is very, very siloed. You could have, you know, a city in a county and those two departments won't even talk to each other. And then, you know, the network of the country is the same. So when you are being ridiculed by some of your community, um, being told, well, rods are, you know, for black and white and cones are for color and that's it. Um, how, how did you, I mean, you know, kicking the door is an analogy, but how did you actually muster the strength and move the needle against such a, uh, a inertia in the, the community that you were working in? I think, first of all, it's easier when you're younger because you've got more confidence um, and um, and perhaps you're a bit more arrogant. And I think that 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 helps. But I think it's more than that. And I and I and I I know it's sort of caricatured, but it's a can do attitude. I was surrounded by people who were enthusiastic. And one of one of the things that people said to me before I came to, went to the states was, "Your problem, Russell, is you're just too enthusiastic." And when I got to the states, um, it was embraced, and uh, that's what how, that's how you're supposed to be. So I was pre-adapted, um, and I think there's a very large unacknowledged um, uh, debt that many European um, scientists have to their experiences in the United States. Many of us left. The UK um, towards the end of the 80s um, and discovered a new way of doing science where enthusiasm was embraced, where can do was driven forward, where, where, where you know, where you were expected to kick the door. Um, and it, it wasn't it wasn't bad. You didn't sort of, sort of curl up in the corner and, and, and sort of think, oh, well, that's it. You know, um, you actually got up and you kicked the door. Um, and so when we returned to places like the UK and, and, and other European countries, we were not prepared to stand up, you know, not prepared to put up with the old hierarchies and the old sorts of ways of doing things. And I think, and, I, and I'm very serious about this, that, that I think the Americans need to know what they've contributed to world science by training a cohort of individuals 
um, throughout the 80s uh, and 90s. Um, and uh, they've gone back and the health of UK science, for example, I think is very dependent on a lot of people who went away and then came back and have put that energy that they experienced in the States into the science that we're doing here. Uh, it's 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 um, a really huge contribution, which I don't think anybody really appreciates um, in, in the States. So many of us who worked in the States have great affection for not only the opportunity, uh, but also the spirit of, of the country. Yeah, and I agree completely. When I moved here, I totally bought into the American dream, but the original American dream. You know, you come here, you forge forge a, you know, a path in your own career, you put a roof over your family's head. Very, very simple. When I arrived here, it really was right before the big crash. So the American dream had kind of morphed into a large house, a jet ski, a, you know, a Winnebago. So it was a little distorted, but... I think that's it, that that immigration story, that entrepreneurial spirit, that challenging the system is at the core of what I got here. Now the maddening thing is that's been suppressed a lot in America. So it's about reigniting that fire within this country itself. Yes, that's what I understand. And, and it's, a, it's a great shame because um, there are so many qualities and so much drive. But I think, I think, again, if I might speak freely, I mean, I think the fundamentals of of United States are there. Um, it may go for a wobble from time to time, but it will self-correct. And I have every expectation that um, those wonderful attitudes um, will, will return, and there will be more of perhaps of a consensus and an appreciation of everybody contributing to the American way of life. Absolutely. Well, I'd love to start at the very beginning. I know, um, you know, some of your journey as far as higher education, but tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Ooh, that's interesting. Um, so I was born in a town called Aldershot, which is in Hampshire. And Aldershot is known as the home of the British Army. Um, and the reason was that uh, my mother had gone through the ranks of being a nurse and then a matron and then was invited to take charge of a home for socially deprived children preschool so these were these were kids who were no older than six between you know and some of them much younger and so grew up in an environment where there were children from a very difficult family background or may have some physical or mental handicaps. And they were they were looked after by, by mum and obviously a large number of, of, of staff in this huge great old Victorian house. And so so there was um there was there was that was what my mum did. My father um was in charge of the pathology laboratories at British Airways, BOEC as it was then. So there was always sort of kind of vaguely biomedical stuff. My, my father was was um, uh, a really great pathologist, so he would prepare lots of specimens and so microscopes featured large. And in fact, um, a very, I must have picked this up from him because um, I, I desperately, just desperately wanted my own microscope as a very young kid. And I think like all of us, we get these little cast iron, you know, microscopes, tiny little thing. And I remember being very frustrated that, um, when I looked down at it, my eyelashes would get in the way. So as a pragmatist, as a, a probably a six or seven or maybe eight year old, um, I decided to cut my eyelashes off <laughs> so it wouldn't get in the way. 
And I remember my poor old mum saying to me, what, what have you done to your eyelashes? And I said, I cut them off because they kept on getting in the way when I was looking down the microscope. And she, and she was great because what she said was, well, okay, um, that might not have been a, such a smart thing to do because, of course, eyelashes are there to stop to protect the eye from you know, things falling in. So, it's, so I, I'd rather you didn't do that again. So rather than getting shouted at, I, uh, I, it was a very good strategy because she'd already worked out that if somebody shouts at me um, or tells me to do something, then I will do the opposite. Um, but she, she was very reasonable and, and, um, and, and it was a very sound argument and so i completely complied i've never since cut my eyelashes off <laughs> <laughs> i can literally see what you're talking about too because i had a microscope microscope and it was the same thing there were spiders everywhere it was actually my yeah, own eyes <laughs> exactly and you know you couldn't see that fly proboscis or b-wing or whatever the, the slides that we all looked at as kids so um that was that uh, but my father left when i was uh, 11 um and um so a uh, complicated times and i think uh, as children one of the protective mechanisms is to see the world in black and white and so basically i then refused to see my father again so never saw him until you know and, and he died when i was doing my, my my phd so it was that sort of big sort of schism in in my my early childhood um i was lucky because i had the most extraordinary grandparents and so in a sense i'd always been close to them um, but they provided an incredible sense of stability and nurturing. And um, I, I mean, it was a, a remedial. You know, I was in remedial classes at school. I just lived in my own little world, my own little bubble, looking down my microscopes, you know, collecting fossils, all that sort of thing. And I, rem I was a good swimmer, really good swimmer. And so um, I remember uh, winning, I know, I was the captain of the school for the swimming team and you know, just won this gala and the, the headmaster came up and said, um, of course, you do realise Russell is an entirely non-academic child. Um, and uh, but my dear old gran, she always sort of, no, no, he's, 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 he's all right. You know, he's bright enough. So don't worry about it. And of course, um, that was it, one could be more relaxed, I guess, in those days, because we weren't sort of constantly being driven forward over the next hurdle. So there was time to sort of, um, I guess, regroup um, and there was time to catch up and so I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class within 18 months completely bizarre really fascinating so yeah I mean I had that that love although my parents split up um, I was lucky to have that support from my grandparents who who I was very close to and so I, I had that that and I know very many people can be terribly affected by the parents splitting up. It didn't, I don't think, had a huge effect on me because I had that that huge cushioning um, as well. So, um, yeah. And then um, went to university and University of Bristol. And uh, it was so exciting because I then really met for the first time lots of other nerdy people like myself. And, you know, it's it's part of the excitement of university. There are many things, but one of the things is that you can stay up until the early hours of the morning just chatting about stuff and things that matter. Um, and so it was it was a wonderful time and just got more and more. I did zoology, so just immersed myself in the in the world of biology and um, then did my my PhD in Bristol and, and then got the opportunity to do a little bit of postdocing, but I stayed, um, I stayed in Bristol, but but actually I spent most of my time in Holland learning 
photoreceptor like you know biochemistry and germany um learning anatomy and that was a again a really formative experience because you go to another place and you see another way of doing science and that that sort of i, I mean i had a, an extremely rigorous training it was pretty brutal i mean i, I, I and um my supervisor and i now get on incredibly well i mean he's been amazingly supportive throughout my career without me knowing it half the time but there were occasions where we did have some clashes um and i won't go into any particular detail uh but we did um uh and i and it was very useful but it, but part of the reason was he was just very very rigorous and would would um I remember when i gave him my first draft of my phd thesis and Remy's quite old school. And, and so it was a draft. And I thought, well, it's kind of a draft. And, and he read this and he said, this is the worst draft of a PhD thesis I have ever read. It is even worse than the foreign students. <laughs> oh, <laughs> God. Yeah. <laughs> and, and um, you know, uh, and, and that was sort of quite a confidence knock. But then it was a very interesting because another person, another very good scientist read it and said, it's, this is great. And in fact, the changes were that he was well because basically I didn't write like he wrote, and so he would rewrite in his style, and that was another great lesson because with 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 our my team and I'm given a paper, my first temptation is to rewrite it in my style, but that's wrong. Basically, as long as it's coherent and as long as it's well structured, you don't have to have. Um, the same phraseology or the same sorts of um, it, it can be different, and, and so uh, uh, yeah, that was a good lesson. But anyway, um, uh, and then after, and then we had um, uh, a visitor from the states, Mike, Mike Manica, and we got on really well. I mean, he was just he and his wife Shirley, both sadly uh, dead now. And uh, he said, "Why don't you come over to the states?" You know. So I went over for three months at the end of '87. And it was just amazing. And the generosity, I mean, they had a car and called Pigweed. And they said, look, you know, you can use Pigweed. And I stayed in their place. And it was it was just amazing. So he said, well, why don't you come back, you know, become an assistant professor? So got back um, and um, uh, went to university, uh, went, went to University of Virginia and uh, spent eight very happy years there doing a lot of teaching. I learned um a great deal about teaching and my class which was intro biology 202 um went from 200 students to 700 students i mean we just just exploded and it was great i mean these are fantastic kids i had a, i had a great time um and uh then we came back uh, to imperial college um first of all biology and uh then tried to get all my stuff funded uh which had previously been funded in the states and it just kept on hitting the deck. Very interestingly, incidentally, I wrote, um, I hope I'm not going to get anybody into trouble, but I wrote to NOMH because I had a grant which um, couldn't leave the country. Um, and so I wrote saying, look, I've taken a job at Imperial College. I understand my R101, cannot leave. Um, and so very regrettably, I'm going to have to return it. And I, and I sent a fax. And then I got a call. You can tell how long ago this was. Um, and then I got a call from this wonderful chap who I'd worked with, you know, my, my project manager, and said, I've destroyed your facts. As far as I'm concerned, you have an honorary appointment at the University of Virginia, and that's where you'll be based. 
Um, and he said, we want to we want to fund the best science there is around the world. And, and if you um, are not in the States, well, that's unfortunate, but we're not going to take the money back. Now, actually, officially, he should have done that. But what that allowed me to do was to keep the research going because we, we got the early studies in the States and then we could expand them massively. And, the, and it was all the string of science and nature papers that were really came from 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 the time at Imperial or the, or the first crop. Uh, but it was based on early findings that were, were made in the States. So um, whilst I was trying to convince my UK colleagues that we discovered something important um, uh, and before the grant funding kicked in there, I had the same exactly the same problems when I returned to the UK as I had when I was first in the States. Nobody believed it. Um, but 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 through this funding, we kept the whole edifice on the tracks. And um, and the rest is rest is history. <laughs> so walk me through your kind of journey into chronobiology, and then when did the merger happen between circadian rhythm studies and the sleep world? Yeah. Um, so if we go back to to the undergraduate days at Bristol, there's a famous vertebrate textbook called "The Life of the Vertebrates" by J. Z. Young. And uh, I was reading this, uh, as you do, one evening, and I came across uh, this work on the lamprey, you know, these really primitive fish-like creatures, um, early vertebrates. And it had a, they, he, J.C. Jung talked about this, this third, this parietal eye, that they actually have their lateral eyes and then a photoreceptor actually on top of their skull. I thought that was just so amazing and so cool. And I remember it was the second year I rushed in and then started speaking to one of the professors there and said, look, I really want to do some work on something like this. And so we set up my third year project, which was recording from these third eyes, these, these pineal photoreceptors. This was in frogs. And uh, so that was just so cool, you know, because here's, here's a, a structure that is not an eye, but but light sensitive and regulating behavior and biology. And that then got me into my PhD work, which is how birds detect the expanding and contracting day length and use that to regulate their reproductive system. So, you know, the increasing days of spring are detected by a weird photoreceptor in birds. Believe it or not, those receptors are actually within the brain, uh, actually near the, near those cells that are actually activated to trigger reproduction. So you've got cells in the hypothalamus, deep in the brain, which are light sensitive. And at this point, people say, oh, come on, what are you talking about? How, you know, no light can possibly reach the brain. Well, it does. And we've all done this, uh, uh, illustrated this point when kids, because you you crawl under the bed clothes and you, you put a, a flashlight to your hand and your hand glows. So yes, lots of light does penetrate through tissue. It's scattered and absorbed in a way which makes it useless for vision. But as a way of detecting the dawn-dusk cycle, it's fine. So you've got lo local light detectors. So that was the sort of the, the photoreceptor, I, I, which made, when we started looking at mammals and how the hell do they do it? Because we knew they didn't have extra retinal photoreceptors. Because if you covered up the eyes, all light responses were gone. And in fact, mammals are, are very interesting. They've gone through what's called a nocturnal bottleneck. The entire mammalian lineage was once nocturnal. 
And so while the, the ruling reptiles, the archosaurs, the dinosaurs dominated the daylight environment, our ancestors were emerging at twilight from their burrows um, and then, then scuttling around. And, 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 and of course, nocturnal animals don't have brilliant vision. Um, and uh, they also have lost extra retinal photoreceptors. So that's why mammals don't have it. Um, so, so making the conceptual leap that there could be a weird photoreceptor in the eye wasn't so huge for me because I'd worked on weird photoreceptors outside the eye. Now, for vision biologists who've only studied rods and cones and, and, and visual responses, that's why it was such a heresy because they'd never looked at light responses other than vision. And I was looking for a light response, which was regulating the clock. So that was part of the, it, it's a great example, actually, where um, interesting discoveries emerge at the interface between different disciplines. Um, and if you're siloed in one particular um, part of science, you tend not to think more broadly. You just take a lot of facts as so-called facts, as read. You don't question it. But if you come from the outside, you tend to to sort of think about things slightly differently. So again, that's why it's so important, I think, in the sciences uh, to, 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 to break down the barriers and, and get people in different areas talking to each other, because that's now where the exciting stuff is emerging. So, so I was always interested in photoreceptors, and that's why I spent a lot of my career. Then I was, when I was at um, working at Charing Cross Hospital, which was the medical school part of Imperial College, which is where your dad, dad was, of course, um, I was in a, in an elevator um, with a psychiatrist and said, oh, you work on, on, on sleep, don't you? And I said, well, actually, I work on circadian rhythms. Um, and, he, and he's sort of oblivious of the subtlety between the difference, and we'll come back to that later. Um, he said, yeah, I, I, of course, my patients with schizophrenia, they get up late, they go to bed um, uh, late, they miss my clinic and don't have friends because they don't have a job. And I thought, well, that's kind of a bit daft. And so that that irritation triggered a, a study, which is the one of the first studies on the sleep-wake cycles and circadian rhythms of individuals with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. And that got me into human research. And, and in fact, just sort of parenthetically, those, those rhythms that we saw in that, those severe cases of, of mental health, the rhythms weren't just bad, they were smashed. I mean, I have never seen such disrupted sleep-wake cycles in, in anything else. I mean, these, these were profound and it made a huge impact on me and so that started a parallel set of studies um, uh, on humans and 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 so uh, now I sort of span you know human studies and um and 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 animal studies but you asked so so what about sleep um and and, and circadian rhythms and and so in the early days those of us who went to circadian rhythm meetings were comparative biologists. There were people working on plants and pigeons and reptiles and maybe a few people working on mice. And we were just kind of zoologists and botanists interested in rhythmicity. We never thought about sleep. Um, what Where sleep has its origins is in medicine um, and it's medics sticking electrodes onto the surface of the skin on the scalp, recording the electroencephalogram. Uh, and looking at how the EEG changes with different sorts of states and conditions. So you have non-REM and REM sleep and all the rest of it. But we didn't go to the same meetings. But then as we had a greater understanding of the role of circadian rhythms in the regulation of sleep, 
And as the neuroscience of sleep became um, much clearer, uh, it was it was it was um, crazy to many of us to think that sleep should be considered as distinct. It's another twenty four hour uh, phenomenon. It's complicated, but at its heart, one could argue, is the the regulation by the circadian system. So now I feel comfortable working, you know, saying that I'm both a circadian and a sleep researcher. And in fact, a lot of the stuff we're doing now, going back to the animal models, we've got some really cool data on how light is regulating the, the, the fundamental mechanisms regulating sleep. So there's some, some, some cool stuff that we're hopefully going to be publishing fairly shortly. Um, so, yeah, and now, now, of course, I mean, you know, the past 10 years in particular, meetings are designed where both circadian and sleep are considered uh, in, in the same meeting and, and um, the researchers mix. And I think that's been incredibly healthy for the field. Well, you talked about schizophrenia, so I'd love to unpack that first, the mental health element of sleep deprivation. So when we're talking about the horrendous you know, mental ill health, addiction, suicide epidemic that we have, yeah. I think globally, but especially in, in the professions listening, um, yeah. again, as I mentioned before, the focus a lot of times is the trauma that we've seen. Now, there's undoubtedly a correlation between childhood trauma that you know we had before we ever put a uniform on which is very very rarely discussed but in my profession in in the fire service in america the average work week is about 56 hours you do 24 hour shifts which i'm not opposed to because we are in a building with beds and you know I, I think that's that's better than splitting it up into 12s and rotating it but they only they get 24 hours on and 48 hours off um so really that's a day between 24 hours without sleep um so with that initial kind of thought process with the schizophrenia, was it a kind of chicken and egg scenario where where the schizophrenia is making the sleep deprivation worse and or the sleep deprivation is initiating the schizophrenia? Yes and no. Um, really, what those observations in schizophrenia uh, made me think, and, and, we, and of course our increasing understanding of the mechanisms underpinning the neurobiology of sleep, we, we produced a very straightforward conceptual model which is that because the sleep-wake systems draw from all the brain neurotransmitter systems and an interaction between multiple brain structures, the hindbrain, the midbrain, the hypothalamus, the cortex, there's immense complexity. And we thought, well, hang on. Um, surely the pathways and the networks that give rise to normal mental health and the normal sleep-wake cycle overlap. So if you have a, a mental health condition, let's say an abnormality in a particular neurotransmitter that predisposes you to a mental health condition, it's going to have a parallel impact at some level on the sleep-wake timing systems and the sleep-wake systems in generally. The systems overlap. And we've got evidence for that because genes that have been linked originally to mental health problems are now been, have now been shown to be very important in the regulation uh, and the generation of the sleep-wake cycle and vice versa. So we've got empirical evidence for that. So there is, and we kind of know this, a genetic uh, predisposition to have a mental health problem. Um, and in parallel with that, it will generate a sleep problem at some level. But going to your point about the feedback loops, of course, because of the destabilizing effect of sleep and circadian rhythm disruption on physiological and behavioral uh, and indeed mental health, that's going to exacerbate 
the mental health status. And the mental health status, of course, and perhaps the drugs associated with mental health to treat it are, are going to feedback and impact upon the sleep-wake disruption. So you can go from a sort of a, a something at the core, which is a sort of a genetic predisposition, a vulnerability, and move very rapidly uh, to a to a critical state because you you get that feedback loop where the sleep uh, exaggerates the mental health and the mental health exaggerates the, the sleep. So if you if you follow that logic, you can say, okay, well perhaps we can think about the sleep wake system as being a therapeutic target. And so what we did, and Dan Freeman, in a great colleague in psychiatry, led this study. We basically uh, were able to use approaches which would stabilize sleep wake in individuals with their diet with uh, who had insomnia but also had um um paranoia and hallucinatory experiences and it was so phenomenal because just by stabilizing partially stabilizing sleep wake you actually reduced the severity halved the levels of paranoia and hallucinatory experiences showing really for the first time that we can think about sleep uh, as a therapeutic target for mental health conditions. So that's that's how that casual conversation in the elevator with a psychiatrist has gone. And now, of course, uh, as you rightly point out, James, um, sleep-wake is regarded as an incredibly important element in both the, both the regulation, uh, but also the prevention of mental health states. We now know, for example, that um, a change in the pattern of sleep uh, is uh, characteristic of a either a first depressive episode or a recurrent depression. We've also shown that in kids who are vulnerable at high risk of developing uh, bipolar um, are already showing a, a disturbed pattern of sleep-wake prior to any clinical diagnosis of bipolar. And so what that opens up, of course, is you look at those kids who are vulnerable if you stabilize sleep wake in those individuals, then will you divert the brain from a from a, into a different developmental pattern, avoiding, let's say, some of the uh, problems of bipolar, or will you st delay the onset of some of these conditions? Now we don't know the answer to that, but what's now been appreciated is that intimate association between mental health and sleep. Well, my observations with multiple departments I've worked for for in the east and the west coast, I got to see, you know different agencies, different um, shift patterns, but roughly the same work week if you break it down. And I've seen with my own eyes, more so once I left the fire service, because when you're in it, you, your observational skills are not so good because you're so damn tired yourself. Yes. But I've watched young firefighters deteriorate rapidly. Like Where I, where I coach and train now, um, there's, a, there's a few firefighters that began when I was there and now are you know, five plus years into their career. So... Talk to me about the impact of sleep deprivation on yeah. on the brain. What is it supposed to be doing at night, and what is not happening with our doctors, nurses, police, fire, etc.? Yeah, I guess we can we can um, unpack this at two levels. I mean, first of all, what do we know about what goes on in the brain whilst we sleep? And we know that memory consolidation is critically important. We know that it's not just the not just the laying down of facts in our brain, but also we're, we're, we're playing with information. So if you want to come up with innovative sol solutions to complex problems, a night of sleep has been shown overwhelmingly to be able to, to help you make important decisions and solve problems. So higher brain function is going on whilst we sleep. In fact, some areas of the brain are more active when we're asleep 
than when we're awake. Um, we also know some important stuff uh, that, for example, clearance of, 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 of toxins such as misfolded proteins, such as beta amyloid, which, of course, has been associated with Alzheimer's disease. That's being packaged up and got rid of whilst we're asleep. And in fact, um, if you deprive people of sleep and then look for beta amyloid deposition within the brain, you can detect it after just one night of no sleep, which may be the mechanism which which accounts for the fact that if you have poor sleep in your middle years, it is a risk factor for dementia and Alzheimer's when you're older. Now, I would never say that poor sleep is going to cause Alzheimer's, but if you're vulnerable, then this could be an additional risk factor. Um, so, so that's the the sort of thing that we see as being critically important whilst we sleep. But if you if you look at it in a slightly different way, is what happens to you when you don't get sleep? and you, you suffer sleep and circadian rhythm disruption. And emotional and cognitive responses, you name it, it gets screwed up. So fluctuations in mood, negative salience. What that means is, is that the tired brain remembers negative experiences, but forgets positive ones. So one's whole decision-making capability is based upon the negative stuff that you experience, not the positive stuff. I think that's such an important observation. Uh, irritability, anxiety, um, loss of empathy and frustration, uh, risk-taking and impulsivity. Uh, I think this is really, really interesting. You do stupid and unreflective things. So you're going, you think, oh, yeah, I can make that. I, I can get through that that um, uh, uh, stoplight um, before it turns red. And, of course, under normal circumstances, you wouldn't dream of it. But you kind of do stupid things um, when, 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 you're, when you're tired. There's a greater use of stimulants to try and override this overwhelming sensation of, 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 of sleepiness. Um, of course, decreased cognitive performance. You can't process information, poor memory, poor concentration, poor communication skills. You can't actually articulate what you want. You can't find the right words to actually express yourself appropriately. Um, and, and reduced social connectivity, i.e. you don't feel as though you're part of, you know, your community and, and, and your family and, and you feel that it's sort of somewhat detached and bearing, bearing in mind, I mean, we can talk about this later, but, you know, the divorce rate in, and I'm sure you've seen this, James, in certain areas of night shift work is so much higher than in day shift. In fact, there was a study from the state which showed that um, night shift workers doing the same job had a divorce rate which was six times higher than, than the day shift. So they're the, the, the short, and that can kick in under relatively short term. So, you know, um, switching between night shift and day shift, you know, tiredness, circadian rhythm disruption, you're going to see this. Um, and, and of course, that's why we, we need to know about it so that we can at least be sensitive to the fact that we may, may be going down that route. Longer term um, night shift work, sort of the chronic impact on physiology and health, well, of course, there's daytime sleepiness, um, which which you can get for short term, but this becomes a really sort of chronic problem. Microsleeps. It's estimated um, that there are at least two hundred thousand crashes every year on the freeway uh, as a result of, um, of 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 microsleeps. This this uncontrollable falling asleep at the wheel. I think the American Automobile Association says could be as could be actually three times greater than that. So it's 300,000, difficult to know. These are particularly bad, of course, because unlike other crashes where you are at least awake to stop yourself, 
crashing into the car in front of you or the barrier. You've fallen asleep, so there's no recovery. So they tend to be faster and more damaging. Um, cardiovascular disease, uh, uh, altered stress responses, you know, you've got the, you're activating the, the sort of cortisol and adrenaline. And of course, that's feeding back. It's lowering immunity, making you more vulnerable to uh, infection. Uh, and it's probably increasing vulnerability to cancer. Classic studies on night shift nurses, um, higher rates of colorectal cancer, breast cancer, and in uh, airline pilots, um, uh, long haul airline pilots, higher rates of prostate cancer, for example. Big metabolic and abnormalities, you, you know, such as obesity, type 2 diabetes. And of course, as we've already touched on, greater vulnerability to depression and psychosis. So I think it's so important to appreciate that sort of shift work, um, sleep and circadian rhythm disruption um, is so much more than the irritation of feeling tired at an inappropriate time. It has an impact upon our entire global health our ability to process information, respond to other people, uh, our whole mood, um, but it also longer term impacts upon our, our physiological and, uh, health as well. Um, it's, a, it's a really serious issue. I mean, World Health Organization now, um, because of the, the links between cancer and night shift work, have identified night shift work as a probable carcinogen. Uh, I mean, you know, this is, this is serious stuff, but I think, so why isn't why aren't people more um, sort of tuned into this? Why why is it kind of dismissed? And I think it's getting better. But those of us who remember the eighties, um, you know, when, when it was in its lowest point, um, I guess, where people will come into work and say, "Yeah, I've done another all nighter," you know, and people pat them on the back and say, "Oh, how cool!" Um, and I think we are beginning to realise that those so those sorts of people will be despised in the same way that we now despise smokers. As, as not only causing harm to themselves, but potential harm to others, you know, secondary smoke, um, secondary accidents. Um, I mean, you know, tired pilots. I mean, there's some, some, some really interesting studies. There was a uh, India crash uh, uh, over a decade ago where the plane was landing and uh, the plane hit the, hit the deck um, and, and most of the, the, the passengers and crew um, were killed. And what happened is that the pilot had simply had a microsleep, had fallen asleep in the middle of landing the plane, this overwhelming sense of tiredness. Um, and how do we know that? Because uh, he was killed? Well, we know that because you could hear him sm snoring on the voice recorder in the cockpit. So, you know, it's not only harm to yourself, but those passengers were killed as a result of that individual um, suffering uh, sleep and circadian rhythm disruption. So, yeah, I, I can't emphasize how important it is. Well, I mean, you've literally summed up everything that this community suffers from. And I think that's that's the problem is, you know, if we just look at carcinogens in our gear, we miss the cancer, you know, big piece of the cancer puzzle. If we just look at trauma, we miss a big piece of the mental health puzzle. Um, and, and when I hear, I think uh, Dr. John Cordell, I think it was, who's a retired naval um, captain, I think I've got that right. Um, he cited, you know, the Exxon Valdez, and I think it was Fukushima, and some of these yeah. massive, massive incidents that we had were all, you know, related somewhat to sleep deprivation. And you think about all the millions of men and women that are behind an emergency vehicle day in, day out. And I think of some of the what we call line of duty deaths, some of the people that are killed whilst wearing the uniform. 
they fall off the the aerial, the, the giant ladder that we have. They get lost in a burning building. They, you know, crash an intersection and kill a bunch of you know, civilians as well. How many of those were actually related to sleep deprivation? And then the chronic impact. There's a kind of, I guess, a, a unsubstantiated, but pretty, pretty well accepted figure that a lot of us die within five years of retirement. And the sad thing in America is the fire service. The day we leave the fire station for the last time, we cease to be a statistic. So all these retirees that are dropping dead like flies, and I just lost one from Anaheim, a young young fire captain died last week, 56 years old. They're not factoring into the science. So again, there's this kind of turning a blind eye to the, the not only the acute impact of sleep deprivation, but also the chronic impact. Well, I think it's a good example where a long-term follow-up is absolutely essential in this sector. And, and, and the health and well-being of these individuals needs to be tracked uh, beyond uh, beyond retirement, and and uh, and one thing I think we need to clarify though um, is that um, we're frontline staff, whether it's police, fire services, uh, our medical professions, they're needed on a twenty four seven basis. So, and in fact, society generally, you know, now runs on a twenty four seven basis, and so we're not going to put that genie back in its bottle. So the key thing for me is um, it, you can't say you shouldn't do it. What we've got to do is look for ways in which these issues are mitigated. Um, and so we know that, that long term night shift work is where things can really build up. And so perhaps we should limit night shift work to um, five years and then rotate people back onto only day shift. Um, that's one sort of thought. But if we think about the various problems, so after extended periods of work, there's uh, a greater risk of having an accident on the drive home. So there was a study um, on junior doctors in the UK showing that 57% had either had a crash or a near miss on the drive home after the night shift. So what should we prov provide for those, those individuals? Well, in Western Australia, for example, the junior doctors are sent home in a taxi. Um, but what we could do really easily and at low cost is use an app on a smartphone um, which detects head nod or movement of the car and alerts somebody to the fact that they're falling asleep um, where they're driving home. And, and in fact, of course, high-end German cars now have that technology built into them. But we could provide that to, again, reduce the risk of falling asleep at the wheel. Um, loss of vigilance you know, in, 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 and tiredness in the workplace we can increase the amount of light, which increases levels of alertness. Uh, that's not probably particularly useful, I think, for, for fire services, but, you know, um, our other 24-7 uh, factory workers, for example. I think a really, really important area is poor physical and mental health. We should be having higher frequency health checks in this sector to identify these vulnerabilities and problems before they become chronic and you can't do anything about them. And, and I think there's an immense duty of care here um, that people need to recognize this increased vulnerability and do something about it, check for it, screen for it. We know if you catch cancer early, there's hugely you know, success rates in, in, in long-term survival. But if you detect it late on, you know, there's not an awful lot. And, and the, you know, if it started to spread, it's it's really bad. So high frequency health checks. So knowing that night shift workers have high levels of obesity, diabetes 2, metabolic abnormalities, what kind of food do we make available to our night shift workers? It's high fat, 
it's high sugar. And of course, we're pro predisposed when we're tired to want that kind of stuff, but there's no alternative. So what you want is high protein, easy to digest snacks throughout the night shift, which are not going to send your metabolism and waistline into meltdown. And to my knowledge, I don't think anybody's doing that in the sector, which is completely bizarre. It's low hanging fruit. It's something we could easily do. Um, the failure to consequence, to, to appreciate the consequences of shortened and disrupted sleep. Um, and I think, again, it's developing the educational materials. So people know that there's a danger and know what they're getting into and to know what kind of problems they might experience. And it's not just for the individual, it's for the extended family unit. So partners appreciate that. It's not that this loved one has turned into a monster. It's the fact that this is basically an inevitable consequence of driving your biology outside of its normal range by doing night shift work. And I think if people appreciate knew this, they'd be much more understanding of some of the odd behaviors that night shift workers um, display. So education, I think, is so important, um, not only to the individual, but to the extended family group and, and, and your partners. Um, anxiety over apps, for example, sleep apps, most of them are completely useless. They're good for telling you roughly when you went to sleep and when you woke up and how many times you woke up in the night. But when they start telling you about, oh, you had really good restorative sleep or, oh, you had a bad night's sleep, they can't do this. Um, they're not, they, they just they just can't work effectively. None of them are endorsed by any of the sleep federations. None of them are FDA approved. And so don't take these things seriously. They can actually generate increased anxiety. And one other area is that we know there's a biological underpinning of being a morning person and an evening person and an intermediate person. And, and that's called chronotype. And I don't understand why we don't chronotype our workforce to make sure that the late types are best suited for the late shifts. The morning types are best suited for the morning shifts. And what you want to avoid at all costs is a late person, a late chronotype working on the early shift, because th then, then there's the greatest sort of what's called social jet lag. The difference between your biological preferred um, sleep-wake patterns and what's being imposed upon you as a result as a result of job or societal needs. So, I think we can. It's not all hand hand wringing. We're not going to completely get rid of the problems, but I do think there are low hanging fruit that we could adopt now, uh, on the basis of the knowledge we have now to just mitigate some of these problems. Um, so we're not stacking it up for. Uh, even worse long-term um, uh, uh, problems. Yeah, and I agree with everything that you said. And, and it's sad because the conversation, for example, with the, the the fitness is a lot of times put on the responder's shoulders. Well, you need to work out more. And I agree, you do. There's, there's an element of ownership in what we do, what we sign up for. But that's kind of hypocrisy if you're not creating an environment that allows them mentally and physically to have the excuse me the motivation and focus and and um energy levels to walk into a gym and take your health seriously yeah and i think the problem is that the employers kind of know about this um but most of them the business sector is becoming much more sensitive to it incidentally but most of them are just sort of sticking their head in the sand and my real concern is that there's going to be a series of class action suits 
where the whole thing becomes litigious and reasonable dialogue between employers and employees to try and get a better solution um, is going to be um, cast into the outer darkness. Um, I mean, you know, an, employ an employer could easily go and say, well, hang on, you know, we know this stuff. There are books published on this stuff. Why have you chosen to ignore it? And so I think I think we've got to move quickly before it turns ugly um, and that we then are not being in a position where we can do something constructive now. So one of the, th the problems I face, one of the doors that I'm you know, breaking my foot on constantly <laughs> is uh, <laughs> in America specifically, um, the, the bare minimum work week is 48, 56 hours. So, so basically, like I said, 24 hours straight, no sleep. And a lot, I mean, genuinely, a lot of these departments are either awake or are getting terrible quality sleep because you're waiting to be woken up. And then 24 hours off. So basically, that, that first day you go home, you've already worked eight of that, that 24. Um, then you go home. And then the next day, you're actually ramping up to go back again. Um, so my, there's, there's, uh, departments up in the Northeast, and there's a, there's a couple around the US that do 2472. So there's another 24 hour period between shifts. From speaking to people that have done both, you know, they, they report, you know, it's a much better system. To me, I love the phrase, don't wait for, don't wait for science to prove what you already know. So people will come to me and say, oh, but have you, can you show me studies on how this 56 hour week is worse than this 42 hour week? And I'm like, Really? Did you just ask me that? Firstly, the, the sleep medicine world has all kinds of books, including yours. Um, but secondly, look, I mean, you have Alison Brager and Rachel Mockwell and all these military people who have come on talking about the same thing. So with that being said, if in this particular system, and we're talking about bare minimum, a lot of these men and women are then told at 7 a.m., you can't go home. We need you to stay another 24 because we're short-staffed. So now you're getting into 80-plus-hour yes. weeks. My my California department, just to, just to prove from what I've been told, 168-hour work week if needed, which is, I mean, absolute insanity. Yeah. And, this is, and this is, of course, throughout the sector. I mean, you know, during COVID, um, frontline staff, uh, in the in the in the hospitals were often um, expected to do that, and in fact, in the UK at the moment, we're chronically short of hospital staff because so many are off sick um, with either mental health problems or um, COVID or something else. It's it's and and that just then throws greater um, pressure onto the people who are at work, and I think you see. Frontline staff like yourself are, are, are good citizens. They do the job largely because they want to help. They want to make a difference. And so when asked to plug a gap, they always will. Um, that's true for the police. It's true for nursing staff, for doctors across the sector. Um, and the, the employers know that you're kind of going to do that. Um, and I think they need to say, look, this is not right. It needs to come from the employers, not the employees, because then you're guilt tripped if you say no. They need to recognize what they're inflicting on their staff and say, actually, this is not acceptable. We have to find an alternative. Um, and it, whether it's, you know, having a, a pool of backup people that you call upon, but it is entirely unreasonable to expect somebody who's already chronically tired to then carry on and endanger both their lives uh, and other people. 
Um, so again, I think it's a dialogue between employers and employees about finding these solutions without making it worse. And of course, currently it's making the situation worse. Um, and it and it relies on the goodwill of people like yourself. I mean, you know, uh, who will of course say, yeah, okay, this is really crap, but you know, I, I've got to do it because I need it. Um, and in and in fact, there's got to be an alternative. Um, and um, again, it's got to emerge from discussion uh, from, from employers and employees. Well, one thing that's come up, and again, there isn't the, the the research as far as actual numbers, but again, it's perfect common sense because as you touched on before, sleep deprivation affects us in every way. So at as you progress through a career, an employer has to spend a huge amount of money on Everywhere from you know wrongful uh, injury lawsuits to uh, workman's comp claims, medical retirement, line of duty deaths, um, and so therefore the money that's already being spent, it wouldn't take all of that to reinvest into higher staffing and therefore save that employer money as well. So, in your opinion, if more time was put between these shifts, knowing that we have to have someone to protect our streets every every night, if we gave them more rest and recovery between each shift, what impact would that have on physiological and sort of mental health? It would improve both physiological and mental health, reduce the accidents, and therefore the collateral damage uh, inflicting upon perfectly innocent, innocent bystanders. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, one of the reasons I moved from Imperial to uh, Oxford uh, 16, 17 years ago was the opportunity of setting up this, this institute, the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute. And we have four strategic aims. One is to understand the fundamental biology of sleep generation, sleep circadian generation and its regulation. Two is to understand how these systems fail as a result of societal pressures, such as night shift work or disease, such as mental health, or indeed other sorts of diseases, neurodevelopmental diseases. The third is to develop evidence-based and condition-specific interventions um, to try and mitigate some of these problems that we've been talking about. And then the fourth is to develop resources that educate the broader community about what's going on. And one of the great problems is that People don't know about this stuff. In a five-year medical training, uh, most medics will have no lectures at all, or maybe one or two, on sleep, on circadian rhythms. And if they do have something on sleep, it'll be about electroencephalography um, and how it changes when you have schizophrenia or, or whatever. Um, and so what we've set up is a whole bunch of educational tools, one of which is the first fully online master's degree and diploma in sleep medicine. So we've now got over 200 people all over the world, uh, healthcare professionals taking this, um, and we organize tutorials at, at, at sort of the, the, the time zone appropriate time. Um, and, and there's an opportunity to come to Oxford and to um, take part in a summer school. And I think what we've got to do is get the information out there because there's this sort of, you know, we don't, I mean, most of society doesn't appreciate the, the value of sleep. It's it's a luxury, an indulgence. And actually, it's such a fundamental part of our biology. We've just thrown it away without appreciating the consequences. And so, you know, the excitement for, for me in the last gasp of my career is, you know, to have established this institute and working with the next generation coming through on all of these areas, fundamental science, 
all the way through to its application, the development of new interventions, and critically, the educational component, whereby we can get this information across to the various sectors. Um, And and hopefully, um, we can start to engage government in this regard. So there's, 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 um, again, authoritative websites with the best science explained in the, in the, um, in the simplest, in, in the simplest and most adjustable way, uh, we're not there yet, but that's sort of the the next door that I'm kicking at. <laughs> well, I'm have to look into that myself. Actually, I got my uh, bachelor's in um, exercise physiology, so I might have to even explore the the long distance yeah, no, student be, element myself. Great. Yeah, brilliant. All right, well then. Another area, it's, it's been interesting. I was first exposed really to the sleep medicine world by Dr. Kirk Parsley. I don't know if you've ever heard that name. He was a Navy yes, SEAL. Yes, I, we've never met. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, and so, you know, again, I'm sure what he was taught and believed back then has again, you know, had, a, had a, a genesis to now. So I'd love to kind of fact check a little bit. But one of the interesting things that he talked about was TBI, which again, a lot of people listening, military, law enforcement, myself, I've been a combat athlete for quite a long time. We have that TBI element, which from what I understand, one portion is demyelination of the the sheath. And then you have, from what I would understand, sleep deprivation, which also causes the same kind of thing. Is that still correct with your understanding today? And if so, is it a compounding element between the two? It's it's very interesting. Traumatic brain injury is, of course, something that I sort of uh, come across because of my involvement with Blind Veterans UK, and in fact, their collaboration with with Blind Veterans USA. Um, And it's one of the most common uh, features that occur, I mean, disrupted sleep and circadian rhythms after traumatic brain injury. And it kind of makes sense because what you're doing is is insulting the brain. You're changing the pattern of neurotransmitter release at some level. And that's almost certainly going to impact upon sleep at some level. So it's not dissimilar to the sort of mental health state where you've got these overlapping circuits. If you screw one up, which predisposes you to mental health issues, it's going to predispose you to sleep and circadian disruption and any other insult to the brain. So traumatic brain injury is 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 clearly an area. Um, another one, of course, is neurodevelopmental uh, problems in children, um, which which are completely disastrous to family life because the child often doesn't sleep at night or will wake very frequently disrupting the sleep of the entire family unit so yeah i i you know it's interesting that that one could perhaps argue that good sleep and of course good sleep could be defined in a variety of ways and of course it's very variable between individuals but let's just you know, use the term "good sleep" could be used as a as a as a as a metric for overall brain health. Um, and so, yeah, TBI I think is a serious issue. And currently, we don't have a lot that we can do. Um, I mean, what the the need the knee jerk reflect reflex for all of these things is well sedatives. Um, that's tricky. One, they don't provide a biological mimic of sleep. They sedate the brain. And so some of the valuable things going on are actually um, are, 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 are lost. So memory consolidation, the processing of information by by dead drugs or whatever. Same with alcohol. If people self self um, medicate, uh, alcohol as a sedative, these things are are really very bad. Um, 
Short-term use, of course, of, of, of sedatives is okay, but it's where, where you become completely dependent upon them. So, you know, I think for TVI, what, what we sort of recommend is that you just try and use uh, good sleep education, good sleep hygiene, which is what's detailed uh, in, in Lifetime, my book, and of course, other books as well. Um, and it's sort of getting, getting the, you know, the, the, during the day, you know, getting sufficient light exposure, you're exercising appropriately, you're not napping too close to bedtime, um, you're you're trying to transition from wake to sleep in the in a sensible way. Meditation, mindfulness can be useful for some. Yoga, exercise for others. Um, you are, are not using electronic devices immediately going to before you're going to bed because of the alerting effect. It's all those sorts of things that you can you can do to um, support your biology that promotes sleep and circadian rhythm health. Well, I think that's another very unethical thing that a lot of those sleep aids have been titled sleep aids. Um, I mean, I think, again, Kirk talked about there's a correlation with um, premature death through sleep deprivation and through ambient addiction, if I've got that right. Um, yeah. And so, you know, these people are thinking they're getting sleep and they're not. And I know the absolute crutch in a lot of our professions when it comes to a, a, a perception of deregulation is alcohol. So you take yeah. a sleep-deprived responder, then they go home and have a few beers, even if they're not, you know, quote-unquote an alcoholic, yeah. and now you're destroying their sleep that night and then the following night, and now they're back into it. So they think yeah. they're missing missing good sleep one every three days, and they may be missing every single night. Exactly. And I think that that that's such an important point. Um, and again, it's all part of the, the sleep education, you know, really, it's really, it's, but, but as you know, because you've been at, at the front line, it's really difficult to, to get people on board. I mean, you know, after a hellish time and you need to, to relax and wind down, the easiest thing for most of us to do, and I, I'm the same, you know, is to have a whiskey or a beer or something to, to wind you down. Now, a small whiskey or a beer is fine, but it's where you're using it actively as a sedative. I mean, I, I actually spoke to somebody the other day, and and of course, phenagon is is one of these antihistamines that passes the brain the blood brain barrier and can cause incredible sleepiness. This in sleep and and stuff you can buy over the counter because um, it's basically just an antihistamine, um, and people are self medicating on on things like that, and that can can be a real insult. I mean, I I thought I'd try it one day just to see you know as you do um and i thought you know there's all this talk about fenagon and i took it on a friday evening and i was wiped out the next day i mean it really had and that's one of the problems with these sedatives because not only do they not provide a biological mimic for sleep but they they generate daytime sleepiness and so that's why they're never prescribed or they should never be prescribed for the elderly or indeed individuals with de dementia because it kind of makes it worse so I want to hit on one more topic before we go to, to jet lag and then kind of round this up. But um, another thing that I see in my profession, um, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. In the men, young men, like, you know, in their 30s, a few years into their career, I'm seeing an absolute epidemic now of uh, use of exogenous testosterone. And when, mm. when we hear about the, you know, the, the levels that these men are reporting from their annual physicals, they're absolutely in the toilet. 
I don't know if there's a direct correlation or indirect correlation, but I'm also seeing it, what appears to be uh, an inability to conceive as well, a far you yes. know, reduced fertility level. So I'd love yeah. to hear your thoughts on those. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Not only will testosterone change sort of behavior, make individuals more aggressive, um, there's good evidence for that, but also uh, high levels of testosterone will reduce fertility. So there's that's 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 a, yeah, I mean, What's also interesting, if we think about women, I know there aren't that many women in the fire service, but but I mean, women doing shift work generally, because of the importance of the circadian system in the regulation of the menstrual cycle, and it's at every level, it's the hormone release at the level of the hypothalamus, it's the pituitary release of the hormones that regulate the ovary, uh, that regulate the sort of the receptors that respond, I mean, every level. Um, you have the role of a circadian clock and shift work has been associated with reduced levels of, of fertility and higher rates of um, spontaneous abortion. So, yeah, um, uh, it's it certainly um, taking the exogenous testosterone in men would reduce fertility, um, actually might even cause um, uh, testis uh, to, to reduce in size. Um, and uh, and in women, uh, even without taking um, uh, exogenous um, hormones, uh, the menstrual cycle can be profoundly disrupted um, by, uh, by 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 night shift work. Well, thank you for that because I think these are these are things that we never hear that I think are very important because I, I, the understanding that improved sleep could elevate that testosterone again is not on anyone's lips, and and sadly there's a, there's a, an entire industry at the moment preying on tired people and telling them that this exogenous testosterone is a magic pill and, and ultimately you're, it's another band-aid it's not actually addressing the root cause absolutely no i would i would strongly advise and of course and of course you can get testosterone i guess or, or just just online um but if you were to talk to your general practitioner they would overwhelmingly strongly um urge you not to do it because it does have you know serious side effects so I want to um, get to the 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 round the world thing that I'm about to do, and, and get your perspective of that. But before we do, circling around to the the uh, Blind Veterans UK, talk mm. to me about because I'd never really thought about this. You have some blindness where the eye is still intact, and some blindness where through trauma the eye has been destroyed. So talk yes. to me about the the circadian uh, rhythm disruptions that some of our veterans receive through their service, and then the the chronopharmacology that potentially could help some of these men and women. So, so because of the discovery of this other photoreceptor system within the eye, it's now become clear that the eye is both the organ of space because of vision, but it's also the organ of time because of its regulation of the internal biological clock. Um, and what we discovered in mice and then in humans is that if you've got genetic diseases which have wiped out the visual cells, the rods and the cones, you can still regulate your clock if, if those weird photoreceptors, the photosensitive retinal ganglion cells are still there and working. So one, one really important issue is that uh, clinical ophthalmologists now need to make sure that they're giving the appropriate advice to those visually blind individuals. There has been a tendency to think, well, if you're visually blind, well, the eyes are no use to you. But actually, circadian regulation could be preserved. So they need to look at that. And indeed, people with no vision should be still encouraged to get out, uh, if it's not going to cause any further eye damage, get sufficient light to regulate their clock. Because otherwise, they have this double whammy, which is, of course, vision 
blindness, which is bad enough, but to have also lost the ability to regulate your clock, as you have if you've lost your eyes completely as a result of trauma or indeed um, disease, then what you get is that the clock keeps on ticking. But for most humans, the clock is slightly longer than 24 hours. So um, without eyes, uh, we'll get up and go to bed a little bit later and later and later and later. So you rapidly become completely desynchronized with the natural light-dark cycle and indeed what your friends, family and colleagues are doing. And, and some of the discussions I've had with individuals with, with eye loss have been deeply moving. I mean, I remember, because these are really um, uh, fantastic individuals. They're very independent, fiercely independent. And one chap was saying, that um, he would he's he's completely tricked by his body and he finds it so irritating and and he was telling me of the fact that he knows that the the next day is a Wednesday and that's the day that he cuts the lawn so he wakes up has worked out a way to go outside get to the shed get the lawnmower out work out a way to cut the lawn I mean you know ferociously independent brilliant individuals and then he realizes because the neighbors complain that it's three o'clock in the morning. And it's that, you know, no sense of time. And 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 in a chat to, and in fact, I've got some some nice quotes from those individuals in the book. Um, and one one was saying, I'm slowly becoming more and more isolated. It feels like constant jet lag. And so this is a this is a, a really profound issue. So so why why we're collaborating is that because of our interest in how light regulates the internal clock, we've we've sort of found new receptors. We've now discovered the the molecular and signaling pathways whereby those receptors interact with a molecular clock. And we've got one drug, whether we've got we've got four in development, but one is quite advanced and is actually just completing its first in human trials now. And that will will we'll look at its its um, toxicity and, and dose strength. Um, and then we'll work on healthy humans, and then we'll work on individuals with um, complete blindness. So we've worked it all out before we get to our blind individuals. And the point there will be you can take this drug. Um, the clock will be fooled that it's seen light, and therefore you can stabilize this sleep-wake pattern. And so, so if I can end my career by giving back a sense of biological time to those individuals, I, I'll, I'll, I'll finish very, very happy uh, because it's such a debilitating and appalling. You know, we all know what jet lag is like, but just imagine having it constantly. Uh, for the rest of your life and the social isolation it causes, the fact that it's bad enough to try and maintain a job if you have no vision, but trying to maintain a job when you have no vision and you have no sense of biological time is insurmountable. Um, so no, they're extraordinary individuals. And I'm, I, I am, I'm actually, because of the preclinical data we've got, I'm confident we can do it. I mean, we know what the pathway is. We know what the pathway light activates, and we know that this drug activates the same pathway. So I'm, I'm, I'm 95% sure we'll nail it, which will be, as I say, fantastic. 
that's amazing. It seems like when when we think about veterans, and I've had a lot of people on here. Um, I'm actually about to get a gentleman who's blind. He's not a veteran. But he's blind. He's actually a, a downhill mountain bike racer, and he uses some sort of sonar. I haven't spoken to him yeah. yet, but it's pretty incredible. So I'm looking forward to that. But you know, we don't think so much of of our veterans that lost their their vision. That they're not as you know sexy as someone with you know a couple of prostheses on. Um, but the 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 challenges mentally for losing your vision, as you said, losing that interaction. Adding the the mental health impacts of the trauma itself of the TBI, and then you take that circadian rhythm disruption as well. I mean, the, uh, you, most of us can't even think about it. Yeah, so no wonder the health in this particular sector, you know, uh, levels of of depression um, very high, uh, coronary heart disease, um, diabetes two, obesity, all the things. That, that 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 you see at a higher frequency in this sector, which are dismissed as the oh well, that's kind of because they can't see the world, not because of circadian rhythm disruption. Same in same incidentally in mental health. I mean, the life expectancy of individuals with with severe mental illness is very much shortened, up to twenty five years in some cases. Um, and what do they have? Coronary heart disease, you know, cancer. A dep- all all of those sorts of features, and it's recognised, but it's never considered as pro- as as the as the product of the sleep and circadian rhythm disruption. It's just either well, that's kind of what you get on these medications, or this is what you have to have to endure. And of course, you don't. You can stabilise sleep wake in these conditions, at least partially, using cognitive behavioural therapy, and 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 mitigate some of these terrible health issues. It's amazing. Well, speaking of veterans, um, I am about to embark on a journey with a Navy SEAL friend of mine. He and some other um, special operations uh, men, and then there's a couple of high-level triathletes, are part of a like a year-long longitudinal study. There's a there's a ramp up where they're they're looking at different supplementation, training styles, you know, breathing techniques, mental health uh, elements. But the pinnacle event is called 7X. And in February, they're going to be doing seven skydives, seven marathons, seven swims in seven continents in seven days. So we're Gosh. basically going to land. They're going to do their thing. I'm, I'm going to be kind of documenting it and, and being support. Then we're going to jump in a plane, go to another time zone, do the same thing again. So with us circumnavigating the globe, from a jet lag perspective, what would be some of the tools that you advise and that group of insane individuals to to, to include well, in their toolbox? I mean, the first point, in fact, one of the big papers we published a few years ago actually explains how we get jet lag. We've actually identified a protein. So so when you travel across to a new light-dark cycle, a new time zone, why does it take a day for every time zone you've crossed to adapt? Why don't we adapt immediately? And we discovered that this, this protein is, is, is turned on and actually turns the light input pathway off um and so it limits it acts as a break on the effects of light on the clock so there's there's not particularly helpful um actually it was quite interesting when i when i met prince william a few years ago um he had obviously been briefed and um it was quite funny because he he said to me so what do i do about jet lag and i say well the good news sir is that we we've, we understand the fundamental mechanisms of, of jet lag, and we can cure it in a mouse. 
The problem is we can't quite do it yet in humans. It's a roared with laughter. Um, and it's true. I mean, I think that we will be able to do it because, because actually, if we can get an inhibitor to that protein, we'll take the break off the effects of light on the clock and then you'll be able to adapt. And that's what we've done with mice. Um, uh, and, and so, but what can we do now, which is the key thing? Well, the first point to, to really emphasize is it takes a day for every time zone you've crossed to adapt. So if it's seven time zones, it's seven days, um, <clears throat> uh, at least. And some people a little bit shorter, some people a little bit faster. Melatonin will have a very mild effect. So don't rely on melatonin. Um, it's often mis completely inappropriately called a sleep hormone. It is not a sleep hormone. It's a very mild modulator. Um, and there's a lot of nonsense talked about melatonin, sadly, and a lot of misinformation out there. So, okay, what can we do now? Um, rule of thumb is quite straightforward. If we're traveling uh, west, um, then you seek out the light in the new time zone. And that will mean you'll adapt faster. If you're traveling east, it's a bit more complicated. If you're traveling more than six time zones, avoid morning light for the first few days in the time zone that you're going to, dark glasses or whatever, and seek out afternoon, late afternoon light. Um, I won't go into the reasons why, but it's based on solid science. Um, and so really traveling east is much more of a problem for most of us. Um, and, and part of the problem is that we tend to hit the clock at the wrong time in the new time zone, which instead of, of, of dragging us forward, it can actually push us back. So when we see light is actually rather important. But that rule of thumb, traveling west, seek light out, traveling east more than six time zones, then it's avoid morning light and seek out afternoon, late afternoon light. And that will help you adapt better. And that's what I do. Um, however, I, I'm just amazed at what you guys are going to be doing. I mean, I, I just find it difficult not to get out of bed in the morning, let alone jump from planes and, and you know, do it, all of that stuff. It's extraordinary. You're crazy. Yeah, well, they're, they're doing it. Like I said, I'm, I'm supporting, but um, it is an interesting oh, I, I thing see. because if you I think see. about it, as you've got that progressive sleep deprivation and they're doing, the, some of them are base jumping. They're jumping off a building. Well, um, I, yeah, and I think actually on a serious note is that they need to know. I mean, the, the, the problem, we sort of touched on this earlier, but I think it's worth emphasizing it. The tired brain is so tired, it can't detect how tired it is. Um, and so it does stupid, unreflected things thinking it's okay. So you need to tell these guys that um, uh, actually you you really need to assess the dangers and the problems and the potential risks um, seriously because you're going to be more impulsive, you're going to be less sort of reflective, um, and so for goodness sake, think about this um, as they get more and more tired. And their reflexes will also change. Also, if they're spending a lot of time with each other, they're going to start to find each other irritable. Oh yeah, I can see that too. Stuck on a plane for seven days straight. <laughs> Just it's yeah nightmare. <laughs> now the the whole point of this though, at the end of it, there's going to be a reboot phase, and they're writing a manual for military and first responders on you know a lot of the science that worked. The the, the pinnacle event, of course, is a pseudo shiny object. The whole foundation of this is a fundraiser for their nonprofits for burn injured and um, mental health issues in the first responder and military pr uh, professions. So there's an altruistic you know reason for it. No, I think that's that's wonderful. Um, but but do do you know it's not without some danger, obviously, and they just need to be again. It's that educational piece. 
just you know forget their 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 metabolism their diet they're going to feel hungry at weird times you know they they they're just going to they might again as we've touched on say oh you know maybe I'll just have not just one whiskey tonight but I have just a few um and because you become just you slide into um a strange metabolic space um and so yeah just just warn them beautiful well thank you so your book lifetime which i was lucky enough it's funny my dad sent me a copy and it went to my old house he, he didn't put my new address in <laughs> so the first one got sent back so i got the second one but absolutely incredible and the fact that you do focus on shift work and some of these areas that you know some of the other sleep um, books that are, are well known don't really explore a lot of the communities that are listening at the moment so i was actually blown away by it. i think it should be another bible for wellness for you know everyone especially if you're a shift worker though so tell me about you know what made you write the book and then where people can find it um there were two motivations one is as an academic working in this space uh largely paid by public funds i think it's an absolute duty to get this information out to the broader community. It's no good just talking to other academics and other people in the know. Um, we have an absolute duty to disseminate this knowledge. And there aren't that many really good ways you can do it. Um, you can do the occasional you know, radio interview, or but, but you just, you need to get all the information out there. And so it was it was that that was a, the primary motivation. And, and one of the things that I was really, pleased about is working with the the editors at penguin um was that first of all it's fairly light in the sense that um it hopefully most of it is is fairly easy to read and and it was interesting because i would I, I put in like a little story a little anecdote and they said oh this is great you know put more of those in because that's great it makes it easier to read and as an academic you tend to shy away, you know, you don't do anecdote, you don't do little stories, but but I, I I now appreciate that it can be make the the stuff more digestible. It, I was also thrilled because they didn't kick back at all that there are 921 references, you know, a significant number of millimeters of the book is references. And and they're very, they're very light touch. There's just a small little number. Um, where where the where the science is quoted, and the logic behind that has been that people can go to the original papers um, or the reviews, and they can get more information uh, in in the topics that they want to explore. I mean, a good example of that um, was uh, a, a lady wrote to me saying, "I was really amazed that if you take your antihypertensives." before you go to sleep rather than first thing in the morning, it can halve your chances of a stroke and a heart attack um, over a 10-year period. I mean, that's just, this is phenomenal. And, and the data are based upon thousands of, of individuals. You know, it's, it's solid data. Um, and she said, I mentioned this to my husband. He said, oh, don't be so daft. You know, it doesn't matter when you take them. She said, well, why don't you just go to the reference and check out the, the, the paper? And he did. And he said, my God, you're right. Um, and so I think um, it's respecting the reader and empowering the reader with this kind of new science. Um, so that was the first motivation. The second is I was getting increasingly irritated with the sort of sergeant majors of sleep screaming, you must get eight hours of sleep. You must do this. You shouldn't do that. And, and it missed the whole point about 
human diversity. Sleep is a very tight dynamic part of our biology. And like, sh like shoe size, one size does not fit all. So in the healthy range of sleep, it can be six hours to 10 or 11 hours. Um, and one chap came up to me before lockdown and said, I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I said, well, I can tell you for sure you will die. Uh, but it's not necessarily because you're not getting eight hours of sleep. And it's that kind of we've become more aware of the importance of sleep at some level, but it's then made us anxious about it. And, and I think that's been deeply harmful because when we get anxious about something, we just run in the opposite direction. We don't take it on board. Um, and so um, I, I, I hoped that that I could emphasize the fact that we're, it's it's very variable. The sleep that we get will will change as we age will will change immensely between individuals um the sleep duration the sleep timing uh, and all this stuff and and i think that um what we've got to do as individuals is work out if we're getting the sleep that we need and defend those behaviors so it's it's not rocket science you know do you feel as though you can cope optimally during the day to do the job that you do i mean do you feel able to cope um, are you dependent upon an alarm clock or somebody else to get you out of bed? Do you oversleep extensively on free days? Uh, do you feel sleepy, irritable, um, uh, fatigued when you are awake? Um, do you crave uh, caffeinated drinks? Uh, do you find yourself doing impulsive and unreflective things? Um, and again, listening to your friends, family and colleagues. Are you showing irritability, loss of empathy? Are you doing disinhibited, stupid, and unreflected things. And, you know, that's it. It's the kind of stuff that our grandparents would have told us, really. It's very straightforward. And if we listen to ourselves, we know whether we're getting enough sleep or not. We don't need a, a wretched app or some somebody screaming at us that we've got to get eight hours or whatever. Um, and um, so that was the second motivation, which is to make the, the science accessible, but also... Um, de-stress this this extremely important part of our behavior yeah well i'm glad you brought that up as well because i see a lot of people with the wearables and of course there there are some that, that have great applications and they motivate a certain personality type definitely yeah but i i, I chatted to a couple of twins recently two two lads and they've got these devices and you know they ring each other every morning and say oh yeah so how much how much good sleep did you get last night and uh so they they're competitive about their sleep. I mean, you know, it's just madness. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 it just, it, it's interesting. There's a, there's a wonderful scientist called Ken Wright, um, and uh, he's um, uh, University of Colorado. And he, he has a big sleep class. He's a university professor. And, you know, there's a hundred, I don't know how many kids, but a hundred kids in the class. And he asked them, who here has ever had a sleep app of any sort? And, and everybody raises their hand. And then he says, okay, who now is using a sleep app regularly? And about three people put their hand up. Um, you know, these are smart kids. They know that they're being told nonsense half the time. And, and in a sense, why would you trust a, 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 an electronic device that has been validated in about 12 um, California um, uh, high school, you know, uh, university students, um, when actually the best metric of whether we've had a good night's sleep is ourselves. Well, that was what was weird. Um, I, I'm forgetting the name now. I've got his book behind me, but one of the the 
men that wrote one of the first sleep books. In that, it was very interesting because he talked about the actual metric was sleepiness, was fatigue. And so, you know, with it, you know, you, we were so mm. used to millimeters and milliliters and, you know, all these these metrics yeah. that are measurable. But, it you know, it, it it's not complicated. As you said, if you feel tired, there's probably a lack of sleep. Uh, but actually, you raise a good point. And I think we need to dis, dis, uh, disentangle sleepiness and fatigue. So sleepiness is cured by sleep. Simple as that. Fatigue is lethargy, an overwhelming sense of tiredness, um, uh, probably a depressed mood. Um, and fatigue can't be um, cured by having extra sleep, usually. Um, and it's an indication of an underlying health issue. Uh, very interesting. I spoke to uh, a lady fairly recently, and she has an immune problem, and she has terrible fatigue. She's she's determined, she's very active, wants to do stuff, uh, but she just can't during the day because she feels, feels so fatigued. And so what happens is that she gets to sleep, and then she wakes up, and then she's so anxious because of all the stuff she's failed to do during the day as a result of the fatigue. And so fatigue and sleepiness can obviously interact. But if you're feeling fatigued and you're sleeping, you know, sufficiently, COVID, a classic example, you know, people slept longer, uh, but still felt fatigued um, when they were awake. And, and so I, if, if fatigue persists, I think you need to see your general practitioner to make sure that there's no underlying health issue. Um, so it's really important to, to separate sleepiness and fatigue. Well, thank you for that. Um, one thing I meant to ask you, and I'm just going to squeeze it in right at the end here. So I've been out of the fire service now for four years. I would say definitely still lent into alcohol till not even a year ago. Um, so really being a lot more diligent now, pulled way, way back on alcohol consumption. That's had a great impact on my caffeine consumption. Um, I meditate. My my work output still seems to be good. Um, but the one thing I'm still struggling to shake is brain fog. So mm. do you have any kind of um, advice for people that maybe seem to be doing a lot of the right things but maybe missing part of the puzzle when it comes to that particular symptom? Yeah, brain fog is... It's not fully understood. I mean, it, you know, in some sense, it's a symptom of fatigue. Um, and so uh, fatigue can also be generated as a result of um, excessive anxiety. Um, and so um, I think without digging down into the, you know, your specifics and individual details, it's difficult to know what the origins of the brain fog might be. Um it may well be as a result of, I mean, I don't know if you've, you've had COVID. Um, it, it could be a long tail from that. A lot of people now, it's, it's being appreciated. A lot of people are still suffering from a brain fog as a result of, of, of long COVID. Um, but there are other, you know, an immune imbalance, a metabolic imbalance. There's lots of other things that could be causing brain fog. Some would argue, and I don't know how good the data are, is even your gut bacteria might be important for brain fog. I mean, who, who would have thought it that, that, you know, the bacteria in our gut can not only change our metabolic status, uh, but there's even evidence that in ways we don't understand, they might even affect our mood, depending upon the, the gut bacteria you have. 
And so, you know, other things that people try are, are um, uh, biotics, you know, changing, you know, in, uh, augmenting their, their gut bacteria. But as I say, I don't know how good those data are. Uh, it's not where I, I would have, you know, have much expertise. Now, with previous concussions and TBIs, would that be also be oh, a potential contributor? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a big uh, yeah. Traumatic brain injury is a huge insult, um, and uh, yeah, brain fog is is could easily be linked to um, the fact that the brain has sort of adjusted. It's kind of sometimes rewired itself. But it might be slightly different to the to, to some of the wiring you had before, and so uh, I mean the brain is remarkable. I mean it's as people endlessly say the most complicated structure in the known universe. I love that, um, particularly when I talk to my astrophysic friends, you know, um, who go on and on about the wonders of the universe. Actually, the greatest thing in the universe is sitting on top of our head, um, and um, uh, uh, but but it's delicate. Um, and so uh, brain fog could easily arise from traumatic brain injury. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with gentlemen that were trying to rearrange my face, so that could be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so for people listening, um, I know the the American book is out or is about to come out. So where can yeah, people find that? Okay. So mm -hmm. so they can find it on Amazon. Is that the best place? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it, it's. I know it's advertised at the moment, so it's you know. Um, uh let me let me just uh make sure because the, the english version and the american version have slightly different titles so the so the the american uh, title is lifetime your body clock and its essential roles in good health and sleep um and it's i think it's coming out 20th 19th 20th of uh or maybe towards the end of august yeah but you can you can pre-order now Beautiful. Yeah, it's funny. My my sister is an editor. She works for British television. And she texts me and asks me, okay, this is what I want to say. But how would I say this for this American audience that I'm, I'm, you know, editing for? And it's fine. I mean, that your English title should have been fine for the American title. But it's interesting being, being a, an expat, seeing the, the two differences. And sometimes they have to kind of phrase it in a different way to make it more catchy for one audience or the other. And I haven't checked whether they've changed the spellings, actually. <laughs> Get rid of the use. Yeah, behavior has got a U or not. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't checked. I also, it's only just arrived. <laughs> Well, Russell, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, I'm so glad that, you know, my dad brought your work to my attention. Um, and I know he was enamored to, to hear that we were going to have this conversation. I'm actually going to put it out immediately because um, I think it's it's so important what you've told us for the people that are listening. But we went over. I, I truly appreciate you being so generous with your time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No, it's been a lot of fun, James, and thank you for inviting me. And please send your warm, my warmest wishes to your dad. <laughs> Tell him that if, if if he can get to Oxford, we should we should have a have a reunion and a and a cup of coffee, or or maybe something stronger. <laughs>